On today's episode with Dr. David Petrino, we talk neurotechnology, COVID-19, and what makes New York City a leader in resilience. Tune in for more details only here on the People Scientist Podcast. Listening to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 56, where every week I arm us with some scientific evidence so we can all lead the healthy lives we want to live. This week is a special episode because I have the great privilege of interviewing an amazing scientist, Dr. David Petrino. Dr. Petrino is a neuroscientist based out of the largest hospital system here in New York City, Mount Sinai. His lab is focused on the goal of using technology to better people's lives. He was trained originally as a physiotherapist and then became a neuroscientist, so he has combined his knowledge of physiotherapy, neuroscience, and now technology. Some examples of his past work include using video games to help in recovery from a stroke, using non-invasive brain stimulation to see if they can enhance the performance of athletes, new technologies for concussion detection, and so much more. And he will go into some details about some very cool technologies in this episode. But as of late, Dr. Petrino has had to temporarily close his lab because of the COVID outbreak. As many of you know, New York City in particular has been hit incredibly hard during this COVID outbreak, with the greatest number of cases reported in North America being here in New York City. When we look at the numbers in New York City alone, we have more cases reported than all of China. Now, these numbers are also underreported. We do need to keep that in mind because many individuals have no symptoms. And now at this time at Sinai, we are not providing diagnostic tests for people that do not require hospitalization. Because of the extent to which New York City has been hit, many of you have reached out to me and sent me masks and other PPE to help us out here at Sinai. And I really greatly appreciate all of your kindness and thoughtfulness. So to answer some of your questions about how we've been doing in New York City and how we've been dealing with it, Dr. David Petrino and I decided to have a conversation about that topic. Because in response to David having to close his lab temporarily, as many of us have had to do, David decided to use his skills and connections to help Sinai and the frontline workers in order to help them be more resilient during this time. So for today's episode, David and I discuss what makes New York City a resilient city that has been able to handle this outbreak. People like David are a perfect example of individuals that have stepped up to the plate to use their creativity, their resources, and intellect to make New York a more adaptable and resourceful city. We describe how New York and the people of New York have been able to be more adaptable at this time, and how other cities and individuals may be able to learn from us. So in today's episode, we talk about the neurotechnology and some latest research from David's lab, 
but also we're going to talk about what has made New York City resilient and be able to handle this COVID outbreak. So let's jump into the interview. So I'm sitting here with Dr. David Petrino. We are going to talk about his efforts, for example, in the recharge space, the kids versus COVID campaign, and how he has contributed to cities like New York being more resilient in times of hardship. Um, But before we jump into that, I want to hear a little bit about you, Dr. Petrino. I know you, for example, were trained as a physical therapist, which I find really fascinating. And then you later on did your PhD in neuroscience which is a little bit similar to what I did. I was trained as a nutritionist in the beginning, and then I later on got training in neuroscience. So I'd love to hear about your journey in the beginning and what made you transition to doing a PhD in neuro. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as, as you mentioned, I, I started out as a PT, and I, I was very interested in uh, neuro rehab, um, trying to help people recover from uh, neurological conditions like uh, stroke, traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, things like that. Um, and at the the deeper I sort of delved into that field, the more I realized uh, we really didn't know what we were doing. Um, a lot of what we were doing was not as evidence-based as we would like it to be. And um, a lot of the work that we were focusing on in my opinion, maybe wasn't even the right sort of questions um, that, that needed to be asked. So, um, that was sort of what led me into my PhD, which was focused on trying to understand how the brain controls voluntary movement. Um, we were, it, it was a very basic neurophysiology PhD. We were recording from single neurons in motor cortex and trying to understand how those neurons fired uh, during different forms of movement, different perturbations of movement. Um, and we tried to bring back uh, a complete picture of how the brain controls skilled voluntary movement from that. Um, as with most PhDs, um, you know, probably raised more questions than it answered, uh, you know, definitely went into it with the best of intentions, but, um, and thinking I was going to solve the brain, et cetera. But once I got out of it, I realized that um, we really just didn't, we, we knew even less of what was going on. It was even more complicated and weird and hard to understand than, um, Uh, than we could have thought. So I kind of went down a rabbit hole at that point of getting into more complex questions, more complex computational models to try and explain some of the behaviors we were seeing in the brain. Um, And I think I went down that rabbit hole for about five or six years before I started to really stop and think, was I really impacting clinical um, research and clinical practice in, in the path that I was going down. And my goal is not to make small incremental discoveries. My, my goal is to disrupt clinical practice because that was why I started this whole journey in the first place. So that was when I actually joined uh, the team at Mount Sinai and started uh, working in a space where basically all we were focused on doing was taking technologies that we thought had the potential to be disruptive and rapidly running them through um, you know, pivotal clinical trials, pragmatic clinical trials, to the point where we can get them into the hands of clinicians and be helping patients as quickly as possible. I love that. And you so eloquently put it. I feel like when I had joined neuroscience, one of the biggest obstacles or hurdles I found was the big gap between 
basic neuroscience research and the ability to translate that to the clinical setting. So it's really rare, the work that you're doing, and I hope that the listeners can appreciate how you've made that gap much smaller through your efforts. That's really profound. And I love how you touched upon how the brain is somewhat of a black box that we really haven't figured out yet, but it sounds like you're slowly figuring out with time. Well, you know, I don't know that we're figuring anything out, but we're having a lot of fun (laughs) and uh, we're finding a lot of really effective treatments as we go um, that um, required a little bit of risk and a little bit of innovation and a little bit of, well, why don't we try this as opposed to what's the rationale for trying this, which is a very traditional science way of thinking about things. We we sort of ask why not as opposed to why, and um, it does tend to create um you know a whole field of questions for people to explore when you do that yes far more questions with the why not statement can you say that you have one favorite technology that you've developed oh my god um (laughs) we uh we we work with a lot of really cool tech um and uh and, and a lot of different really cool companies to be perfectly honest you know like um i think that for for me as um, a, a neuroscience nerd, the coolest technology that we're currently working with is actually a collaboration with a, another Mount Sinai researcher by the name of Tom Oxley. Um, he has a device called a stentrode. So it's an endovascular stent that has electrodes on it. So it is able to enter the brain um, vasculature via the jugular. Um, it expands in the superior sagittal sinus, which is one of the big vessels that sort of goes over the brain. And um, once it expands in that vessel, it heals into the vessel walls and is capable of recording brain activity from uh, the patient. Um, and what Tom is using that technology for is to create brain computer interfaces for people who are locked in, um, allowing them to gain control over their environment again. And so we're starting some really cool clinical trials with him in an ALS uh, cohort to see if we can, you know, get people with end-stage ALS to sort of control their environment uh, with thought as opposed to um, other signals from the body. That's incredible. So are you able to not only record but also modulate the signals? Nope, just recording. Um, so it records. Uh, it, it sort of, uh, the, the signal goes into sort of like a little... Um, pacemaker style device that's implanted into the um into the person's uh chest and from there there are algorithms that decode what the brain signal is trying to enact um so you know effectively the simplest the simplest action that tom has been able to reliably get out of a patient is a simple click of a mouse so they can use eye tracking to move a cursor over to where they want and then they think click and the mouse clicks um so it's um it's a unidirectional thing. It can just record and then um, actions happen from the recording, uh, analysis of the recording. It can't stimulate, but I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if stimulation was in their plan at some point. Right, exactly. Just another version of deep brain stimulation, but a far more advanced way of doing so, yeah. And less invasive. Yes, exactly. So would you like to touch upon your most recent efforts? You've done a lot of great work right now to help not just only Mount Sinai, but I think New York City as a whole to be more resilient during this time. You've made a lot like Kid versus COVID campaign, the Recharge Center, and I'm sure many other things. So tell us about it. Yeah, thanks. Um, So when the crisis hit, um, obviously we 
closed our lab, like many researchers um, at Mount Sinai, we um, we wanted to make sure that we were doing our part to flatten the curve and make sure that the spread of the virus was slowing. Um, so I immediately told everyone in the in the team to go home and and, and work from home. Um, and at that point, we started to think about what what we could do to really help the effort. Um, the first thing that we focused on was creating um, a comprehensive telemedicine response to to the crisis. Um, and so we created a remote patient monitoring app that is now being used by um, over 500 people in New York City and actually beyond New York City who are COVID positive or COVID possible. Um, and all we really do with this app is we track their symptoms on, the, on a daily basis. We're working with clinicians who, for whatever reason, cannot be on the front lines. Um, and, and so what they do instead is they're, you know, uh, donating their time to us to work with patients Track their uh, track their symptoms and make sure that they're not escalating at a rate that could indicate that they need to be rapidly uh, brought to the emergency room, and um, and from there we're uh, just making sure that if someone needs to see a doctor, we can rapidly triage them to see a doctor. If someone needs to go to the emergency room, we call ahead to the emergency room and we make sure that um, that everything is streamlined for them so they can get into a bed and get admitted as quickly as possible, and um, you know, so far it has really been an incredibly powerful program, not just because it has the potential to save lives when people are really deteriorating quickly, but also because um, there's a lot of fear and uncertainty around this, this virus. And um, just the simple act of having someone check in every day and uh, having, having the knowledge that someone is tracking the progression of your symptoms and will contact you if something is not looking so good. Um, we've uh, countless times we've been ex it has been expressed to us by the patients in the program that it's just really comforting. It feels great. Um, they're very very grateful for it. And you know, um, in terms of resilience, you know, this idea of knowing that someone's looking out for you, knowing that someone is going to follow up with you if things get too bad, has been a pivotal factor in decision-making for these individuals about whether or not they should go back to the emergency room. Um, and for us, the name of the game is making sure the emergency rooms are not crowded um, because what we need is for our frontline staff to be able to respond to only the people who really, really need to get admitted or, um, you know, are showing up very frightened and, and, um, and experiencing strong symptoms for the first time and, and don't know where to turn. So uh, that was our, our first sort of uh, response and the, and the program has continued. And it's, again, it's open to all New Yorkers and we even have some people interstate who have heard about it and um, have contacted us to be involved and we don't turn anyone away. Um, so after we set that initial response up, the, the question really came to me, uh, which was, you got 3000 square feet of space of lab space laying around at the hospital you know what are you going to do with it um and so my lab is located at the mount sinai hospital but it is um uh it's it's kind of away from all of the wards it's um it's actually near like um the sort of 98th street sort of street and it and there's not many uh, there's not many sort of uh, like actual hospital spaces near where my lab is. So it didn't make sense for us to 
try and think about converting my, my space into clinical space. But it did make sense to think about what other, uh, other things we could, uh, purposes we could serve. Um, and so uh, one of the um, people that I've been working with for a long time in uh, the, the sort of center within my lab that focuses on high performance sports is a group called Studio Elsewhere. And uh, these guys are amazing. They're, they're just this like experiential design, tech focused, awesome uh, design firm that create these wonderful experiences and these wonderful rooms that really genuinely change your your mindset. They change your emotions. They they calm you down when you need to be calmed down. They focus you when you need to be focused. Um, they very much come from the point of view of um, space is never neutral. It it helps or it harms. It's never it's never neutral. So they really believe in that ethos, and so they use that that as a mantra to sort of take spaces that ordinarily could be harmful, like your traditional hospital space, which can feel a little bit threatening and a little bit you know. Um, uh, and a little bit alarming and, and uh, you know, really puts you on edge and, and stresses you out, which, um, you know, we could go back and forth all day about whether that's good or bad, but um, it, it, it is what it is and it makes you alarmed. And what we wanted to do was create a space where first, uh, you know, frontline uh, healthcare workers could show up, sit down and just chill. Um, and so the team made three absolutely phenomenal uh, recharge rooms where uh, clinicians who are working in the hospital can um, book them out for 15 minute times. We scrub everything down. They come in, they spend 15 minutes just in complete like bliss and calm. And then they feel ready to go back and, and, and take on what they need to take on again. In, in the meantime, as well, we've just been incredibly fortunate that hundreds of companies have just been donating pallets and pallets of snacks and drinks and anything that these uh, uh, frontline healthcare workers need. So we've been doing uh, snack runs to the wards. Um, we've had some amazing chefs uh, volunteer their time and their food <laughs> to cook every single day. So we've been open in the space for about four days and we've delivered uh, around 700 meals to um, all of the KCC wards. And um, so really the, the, the word that we're using is relief. It's a relief space. Um, and it's, it's really there for anything that our frontline staff need, including we got a couple of toilets and we got a shower, you know, and those are hard things to come by on a ward as well, especially when you're working really long hours. Um, and in terms of what we've learned in the past from our performance research, um, because we were a little bit intentional and, and, and fairly data-driven about the way we designed the spaces and the offerings that we made. It really is just about um, it boosting resilience through a couple of things. First of all, making sure that the frontline staff don't need to take up headspace with how am I going to eat do I have time for a relaxation or a nap? Do I, you know, like what, if I need to do that, where do I go? All of those questions buzzing around their head don't need to be buzzing around their head. Can you tell me a little bit more details about your recharge space? I know you have some images on Instagram and I will share them with all the listeners, but just a few more details to kind of have, allow people to visualize what you've created. Yeah, so uh, Mirelle Phillips, who is the amazing designer who put the whole space together, she, um, 
she she's sort of an expert on what we call biophilic design so she uses nature and nature experiences to influence human physiology and so um, from the minute you sort of step into the lab space um, depending on which environment you've chosen you're either in this like highly immersive green space that really hits all of your senses you know you've got um, plants all, all the way around you and, and they're silk plants so they you know <laughs> they're uh, they're uh, infection control compliant but they still give you that feeling that you're you know amongst nature um, there's this amazing you know projector that is projecting onto a wall and and giving you a, a sort of a, a nice nature experience there are uh, diffusers that are just changing the smell in the room so that you feel like you've been transported somewhere else there's um a really nice immersive auditory experience uh depending again depending on the environment you might be hearing waves crashing or birds singing but either way it's just all about taking you somewhere else for for a, a few minutes and um you know letting your letting your physiology take a break from the always urgent environment outside um and then i think the other thing that is is very important about resilience from our perspective is the idea that i think all of the literature is starting to move away from the idea that it's an individual trait um, i think what we're really starting to see with resilience is that it is a social resource and one of the pieces of feedback that keep coming back to us is it's so nice that our hospital is doing this for us it's so nice that our hospital cares about us enough to give us this and so um, that I think boosts resilience more than anything because we've got frontline workers going out into the frontline knowing that their hospital has their back and I think that that's been you know really touching and really amazing to see I love that you touched upon the fact that resilience is no longer just an individual trait. I remember when I had interviewed Dean Charney on the concept of resilience, he said, it's now coming to the point where you look and see, can a, a system be resilient? Can a city be resilient? Which brings us to the topic of New York is often looked at as a resilient city, you know, by definition, meaning that you can bounce back from the stress that falls upon an individual or a city. And I think that there's certain things that will determine whether or not a city is resilient, you know, have they gone through hardship? But I also think it's the people within the city that make it resilient. And I think you're a great example. For example, you know, being adaptable to a stressful situation, using your connections, which you've clearly done by connecting to other companies and organizations that can help you out. Do you think that there's other fundamentals to making a city resilient? Definitely. Um... I think that, uh, yeah, New York is definitely a resilient city. Um, in fact, I, I think there's been some really interesting sort of uh, research that has been done on the resilience of New York and which areas are more resilient, less resilient. Um, certainly, I think that um, having a generalized ethos or culture through a neighborhood makes a neighborhood more resilient. So interestingly, a lot of researchers have shown that uh, a lot of low socioeconomic uh, status neighborhoods are actually more resilient than your high SES neighborhoods because the community there is a lot stronger and the community values are a lot stronger and whereas you know your your typical sort of um, upper west side um, fancy neighborhood where maybe you don't know your neighbors as well and uh, maybe your um, 
not interacting, you're not feeling the need to interact with your neighbors as much, and you're not feeling the need to depend upon your neighbors as much, um, tends to be less resilient than your neighborhood that's sitting in the middle of the Bronx and everyone has from, you know, from the time they were born has been relying on one another to, to get through. And there's a, there's a sort of a feeling of camaraderie around what's going on. And in those cases, when a disaster strikes, everyone is always, everyone's looking out for one another and that makes you highly resilient. And I, and, and I think that the sort of population density of New York um, often means that the, just by virtue of the fact that we're living on top of one another, at some point you got to know your neighbors, you know, <laughs> like um, in other cities where you live, you can, you can go forever without knowing your neighbors, but in New York, you, you're going to bump into them at some point and, uh, and then eventually you get to know them. So that sort of adds to it as well. Um, I think also a thing that should not be overlooked and um, we uh, in, in our high performance sports work, we've actually touched on this topic with um, a couple of experts on resilience and performance under pressure who used uh, a team called the New Zealand All Blacks as, a, as an example. These guys are um, one of the most successful sporting franchises of all time. They're a rugby team. Uh, they have a sort of reputation for being, first of all, a highly bonded, socially bonded group. And then second, secondly, a very, very resilient team. And um, one of the sort of things that often comes up with studying the All Blacks and why they're so resilient is actually the level of sort of storytelling, narrative and mythology around the team itself. So it really, really means something to take a jersey and become part of this team. And it's treated as something that is sacred. And I think that actually New York has a little bit of that as well. You know, New York has this very storied history of being a tough city, of being a city of, of people who don't quit, of being a city where, you know, nothing can knock it down. And I think that even, you know, in tough times, people turn to that. And I've, I've even in, in these times, I've seen a lot of content sort of floating around on, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and, and things like that, just reiterating New York's tough and New York's going to make it through. Yes, absolutely. And I feel like New York is very good at embracing their ethos or their title of being strong, tough New Yorkers. And there are a lot of countries and cities that have their own ethos that they live by. For example, Canadians are known to be very friendly. I mean, the province that I grew up in, Manitoba, on their license plates, on the sign as you enter Manitoba, it says friendly Manitoba. So their ethos is that they are friendly. And I think that a lot of other provinces or cities or countries could do better at embracing their ethos. So if Manitobans, for example, are friendly, then embrace that, live up to that standard. You know, for example... For the elderly that are afraid to go to grocery stores to go buy their groceries, perhaps an initiative could begin where younger individuals will go purchase their groceries for them, you know, clean or sanitize the outside of the boxes and, and leave the groceries for the elderly at their doorstep. You know, that would be perpetuating that friendly title of Manitobans. But lots of other cities and countries have their own titles that have lived through disasters like tsunamis or natural disasters that have made them tough and resilient as well. And they can pull upon that history and embrace it and be something that they want to live up to. And that can give a lot of empowerment during this time. But besides living up to a title or an ethos, do you have any other pieces of advice for cities or healthcare institutions where COVID is just hitting them now that perhaps they can learn from us or, or what they can do to help them 
be better prepared to go through this? Yeah, I mean, I think the big big piece of advice is um, listen to your innovators. I think the reason that Mount Sinai Mount Sinai's response to to COVID, in my opinion, has been phenomenal, and and I'm I'm more than happy criticizing Mount Sinai when I when I think it's warranted. But in this case, I, I you know the response has been incredible, and and I think it is because although Mount Sinai can be a bureaucratic system and it can be a siloed system. As soon as this disaster struck, all of those silos fell away. We had we had top leadership at Mount Sinai telling everybody, think differently, think creatively. We're not going to get through this if we just follow the same old rigor and morale and we do things the same way that they've always been done. We need to be adaptive. We need to be smart. We need to be innovative. And I think that there are a lot of healthcare systems that are not geared that way and they will respond poorly to this crisis if they don't do that. So the big piece of advice is this is not going to be business as usual. You cannot get through this by going around in bureaucratic circles. You need to break down all the walls, break down all the the barriers, act fast, act decisively, um, because this isn't like anything anyone has ever experienced. Um, And on, on every level, on the outpatient level, on the inpatient level, on the logistics level where, you know, we're running out of everything where, um, you know, everyone is getting sick and patients are getting sick. Doctors are getting sick. Healthcare workers are getting sick. Every single thing is unlike anything we've ever experienced and it's highly extreme and it's sustained. You know, we, we think about disasters that New York has been through before, like, like nine 11, our death toll right now is like five days is is every five days is one more 9-11 you know it's it is the sustained disaster that's really taking its toll and the only way that i think mount sinai has has made it through is by thinking differently adapting being nimble and it's been um it's been incredible to see everyone come together to make it happen and um i think all hospital systems need to be thinking that way You're absolutely right. I mean, just a few examples of what we've had to do in order to adapt. In Central Park and East Meadow, we have set up a field hospital. So Central Park isn't just Central Park anymore. It is a place to care for patients now. Many of us have been redeployed within the hospital system. So we aren't just scientists. We aren't just admin. We aren't just technicians, but we are all hospital staff. So we are here to help people and to help our patients within the system. If that means that as scientists, we are now running diagnostic tests, now setting up field hospitals, now helping with patient medical records, then that is what it takes. And importantly, using our creativity or or our skills to help contribute to the effort is really what's important here. Yeah, and remember what our mission is, which is to to serve our patients. You know, uh, everyone in this organization from um, the most basic, basic scientists who never thought that they would see a patient all the way through to doctors who are interacting with patients every single day. Our, our mission, our reason for being employed by this institution is to serve. And, um, and sometimes you get called to do that indirectly. And in times like this, every single person is being called to do that directly. And that's what we got to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's the reason why I think Mount Sinai New York has been resilient so far in this crisis that we've been able to handle it. And, you know, according to the definition of resilience, that we will be able to bounce back. Absolutely. 
Do you have any other pieces of advice for other cities or anything else that you want to touch upon in regard to what you think has made us be successful so far in dealing with this? I mean, stay home, <laughs> stay home, yeah. save lives. Um, yeah. It, absolutely. You know, it, it was a funny thing. I was, um, I was sort of uh, asked to be on a news program earlier, earlier today. And um, there was a comment on the program about how, the uh, death toll, the predicted death toll was decreasing. And the question was, you know, is, is, is this just not going to be as bad as we thought? And the messaging, my, my answer was the messaging around the fact that the death toll is decreasing has to be, it is decreasing because we started to do the right thing and we mm. need to keep to do the, keep doing the right thing to keep it down. Otherwise it's going to go straight back up. And and I think people need to keep hearing that. I mean, it's probably the most important message to public health right now that we have is everything that we're doing right now is working and we've just got to keep doing it so that it keeps working. Mm -hmm. So if you had three pieces of advice for people, would you say that it's number one, stay home, number two, stay connected with your peers, and number three, try your best to be adaptable to your new norm? Yeah, and be useful. You know, um, if, if someone in your community needs you, help them. Yeah, to utilize your skill set. And that's the great thing. I mean, that you are an example of that. You had a particular skill set and you tried to think, what can I do based on my connections and what I am able to do to help the frontliner? And I think that's another important thing for other communities to think of as well as what they can do to help support the frontliners right now. And I think that's wonderful, the efforts you've done. Oh, thanks very much. It's my pleasure. Um, I agree with you. These people on the front lines are heroes and we got to look after them. Well, thank you for taking the time to interview. I think everyone will really very much enjoy hearing all of your efforts. No worries. Thanks for having me and uh, hope to talk soon. So that is a wrap, my People Scientist Army, my interview with Dr. David Petrino. He's a neuroscientist that combines physiotherapy with technology with neuroscience to help people live better lives, which in my opinion is really the future of neuroscience and medicine. And perhaps I'll get him on back here on the podcast again in the future to go into more details of some of his future projects. But he utilized his skill set of combining neuroscience with physiotherapy and technology and all of his connections and utilized that to help make New York City more resilient, to help support the system. And I think that we can learn a lot from him and his efforts and how other cities may be able to be resilient during this time as well. So I hope that you all have a super healthy week and I look forward to meeting you back here next week, the same time and the same place on the People Scientist Podcast. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.